Hello, I'm Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to bring you our second episode of China Uncovered, part of our broader China Transparency Project. The project and this series of podcasts are pushing for greater data-heavy transparency for the Chinese Communist Party by highlighting the work of our friends. For our second episode, we're talking about an issue that's become increasingly popular in Washington, particularly over the last decade, Chinese investment. I'm excited to bring in my colleague and co-host for this episode, Riley Walters, Senior Policy Analyst and Economist in the Asian Studies Center. Welcome, Riley. Hey, Olivia. Riley is one of our foremost experts on trade and investment and has been working on investment policy for years. So Riley, China's economy happens to be the second largest economy in the world after the U.S., of course. And historically speaking, the U.S. is the largest investor in the world. So is it safe to assume that China is the world's second largest investor? Uh, well, you know, not necessarily. Um, China's foreign direct investment into places like Europe uh, and into the United States, uh, while historic, you know, if we're looking at perhaps just the last 10 years, um, and of course, some of those specific investments have certainly spooked those in Washington and Brussels. But, you know, uh, the way if, if we look at the data, um, China's investment peaked in 2016 and has continued to decline since then. Uh, Chinese investment abroad is now no more than it was before um, you know, Xi Jinping of China announced the launch of his now ever controversial Belt and Road Initiative back in 2013. So what about Chinese investment before 2013? And even then, if Chinese investment is now on the decline, is it something that we should ignore? Well, to help us better understand Chinese investment, we've invited Derek Scissors to offer his own insights. Derek is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and creator of the China Global Investment Tracker, the leading open source collection of major Chinese investment in the world. Derek has been researching Chinese investments for as long as there has been Chinese investment. He first published his China Investment Tracker in 2009 when he was still working at the Heritage Foundation. But his tracker actually includes Chinese investments that go back as far as 2005. And he continues to update the list on a semi-annual basis. So Derek, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited for our listeners to get to learn from your expertise. So we're just going to jump right into questions here. Would you mind sharing some of the key findings of your most recent China Global Investment Tracker? All right. Well, we had an update, as you mentioned, through the end of June. Uh, I wrote a summary of it, as I usually do in July. Um, Riley tipped this off a little bit with declining Chinese investment. That occurred in 2017, 2018, 2019. But in this year, um, as far as we measured it, it's just pretty much vanished. Um, you can't find documentation of China investing overseas. The Chinese claim they are. They claim only a very modest decrease from last year. Uh, previously, our numbers have sort of fit Chinese government numbers. They, they, there's a huge clash now. And for, for other uh, data sets which track parts of Chinese investment around the world, in the U.S., in Europe, in Australia, and so on, they also can't find Chinese investment. So we see Chinese investment as, as dropping like a stone, like an 80% decrease. And the Chinese themselves see like a 5% decrease, but no one can find the investment that they're referring to this year. Whereas last year we saw a decline, but it was all, it was all documentable. 
the main the upshot being that COVID seems to have either wiped out Chinese investment or wiped out Chinese reporting of their investment. You know, I think for a lot of our listeners, some of them might be, you know, first time in in the investment space. Um, you know, I think too often when we talk about Chinese investment, it, it might seem confusing. Um, you know, are we are we talking about uh, you know the Chinese ownership of a company like TikTok? Are we talking about um, Chinese money uh, building a, a railroad or a port? You know, what what are we talking about here? Can you kind of briefly uh, describe the distinctions between the different types of investments, uh, and more specifically, what uh, investments your report uh, is focused on? What China first got attention for was buying U.S. government bonds. Uh, we don't cover that because it's covered by the U.S. Treasury. China also buys government bonds of, of other countries. That's a kind of investment overseas. It's portfolio investment. We don't measure it. Um, there's also Chinese aid. There's a huge amount of Chinese trade, obviously. They're the leading uh, tr uh, merchandise trader in the world. So, you know, we don't cover that either. What we cover is investments that involve ownership of, of real assets, meaning not financial assets like bonds, that are worth $100 million or more. So it could be China buying into a company, or it could be China creating a new, a new factory itself. Uh, those are both fine. The factory is called Greenfield Investment. The buying into a company is called an acquisition, or it could be called a merger, depending on the hype they want to use for it. Um, so that's what we measure. We also have another category, as you suggested, that measures China's uh, construct or services performed in another country. Uh, and that's almost entirely construction. So China builds in a lot of countries. It builds airports, it builds roads, it builds housing, and we measure those as construction. Um, that can be financed by Chinese lending. Lending is hard to follow. People talk about it a lot, but it's hard to measure. So, you know, there are a lot of different Chinese activities overseas involving money trade, aid, bond purchases, lending, and so on. We cover ownership, China owns something, or services, China builds something in the host country. And Derek, you're saying that no matter what type of investment it is, we're just seeing it entirely vanishing in the last year. I just wanted to clarify that. No, I, I'm, the kind of investment we measure is vanishing. So investment that is by Chinese firms, uh, China's position in U.S. bonds is, is a little bit smaller than it used to be. Uh, its position in Japanese government bonds has actually increased. So on the bond side, China is still investing. Um, but what we measure, construction activity has dropped and investment buying foreign assets has plunged. Mm, that's really helpful. Now, your data captures roughly 90% of the total outward investment. Um, but you say that there's also flaws in what's being officially reported by the Chinese government. Can you outline some of the challenges that you face when you're collecting data on and about China? And also, have you ever had an instance where the Chinese government has responded or reacted to your research and findings? Yeah, um, they used to all the time. If you go back and look at Chinese media, the Chinese government used to cite our data because we, let me do this by history. When the first major investment in the U.S. occurs, which is then legend buying IBM's personal computer unit, I was in the private sector and I was trying to figure out, you know, clients were interested in this. Are there going to be more investment? You know, am I going to be competing with a Chinese firm? Is a Chinese firm going to buy my firm? You know, there's a lot of interest. And Chinese statistics at that time 
came out in September of the following year. So if you wanted to know what China was going to do in 2005, which at the time everyone did, you would have to wait till September 2006, which really wasn't too helpful. So uh, you know, I said, well, I'll just go try to find these numbers. And what I did was not use Chinese government numbers because those weren't useful, but I just sort of asked the companies. And that started the measurement of what do the companies say they're doing, which they say they're doing stuff in real time. They might not actually do it when they say they're doing it, but, but they tell you right at the time they're doing it. So you don't have to wait for the government to compile all this. Um, and that seemed to track very well with government data as a whole. Now, one of the big problems with, with Chinese government data is China says that the majority of its investment is in Hong Kong. And what's actually happening there is Chinese money is going through Hong Kong to its final destination, the US, the UK, Brazil, whatever. Um, and the Chinese stop at Hong Kong because Hong Kong is a separate uh, member in the WTO. So they just report as investment in Hong Kong and that's just not useful to anyone. So most of Chinese bilateral investment figures from the government are wrong because they exclude all the, the money that went to Hong Kong and then went out in the world. So that's a big correction we provide. A secondary correction is China likes to say that its number one sector is quote business and leasing services. That is energy and mining, but they don't want to say that. So they call it business and leasing services. Also not too helpful to people trying to understand if China is going to invest or not going to invest. So those are our two big improvements. We use the disclosures by Chinese companies. Um, there are disadvantages to that. They may not be telling us the truth. They may make mistakes. Um, but initially the government was just really slow. Then this became a bigger issue and they, and they decided to go faster. And now they have the usual Chinese propaganda elements, which is they don't like saying what's exactly what's going on. But back in the happy days of 2008, 2009, 2010, our data was used by the Chinese government all the time because it was better than their data. Let's talk about uh, the happy days for just a second. I mean, you know, back <laughs> in 2005, I guess you just you knock on the door at IBM and ask them how much money they're tracking on investment in China. But now we're probably seeing, you know, multitudes of that, right? So, you know, back in 2005, you were probably collecting like 100 different samples a year. Now you're probably collecting twice that, three times that almost? I mean- Oh, way, way more. Um, what you're thinking about is the successes, right? So there are just a couple dozen successful investments in 2005, and you have to ask at least three times that many questions to get those, right? So you go to these companies and you ask them what they're doing, they don't wanna tell you, and then they say, well, this other company told us, and they say, really? And then, you know, you have this very weird discussion with the Chinese back then, because they weren't used to answering questions. They're not really used to it now either. But the number of questions you have to ask increases dramatically as the number of investments increases because there are a lot more companies to try to track. So back in 2005, there were just like 15 Chinese companies you would bother with who might be investing overseas. And that number has exploded and they just come out of the woodwork. Like, what is this company? Where did it get this money? Which is a, you know, a question for US regulators as well. But now it means you just have to track hundreds of Chinese companies. So I would say, you know, with our couple dozen uh, investments in 2005, maybe there were a hundred cases to check on. Um, and, and now, well, not now because it's declined, but at the peak, when we're in the, in the 200 uh, annual investments of size, we're, we're easily checking 2000 cases. And so it, it, it became very, very difficult to follow. It's actually one reason we got CFIUS reform, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, because it was difficult to follow for the US government as well. Now it's kind of calmed down a bit, at least on the surface, because there's less activity than there was at the peak. 
Wow, that's really interesting. It's amazing how explosive it really has become that the Chinese have just started investing at such high rates. Um, what findings from your research do you wish received more attention? I feel like everyone who is a scholar sort of has those papers that they're like, wow, I really, I, I'm not sure why it didn't get more attention. But from your tracker, um, are there any trends that you wish did receive more attention? Well, it's more, it's less the attention and more would it please sink in. Um, the the <laughs> Belt and Road is not a viable project at the size people advertised when it first was announced. Riley tipped this off too with Xi Jinping's <laughs> announcement. So the Belt and, you know, he makes this announcement and it's enshrined in the Constitution because Xi Jinping is perfect and wonderful and, you know, everything he does is great. And <laughs> road expands 2014, 2015, 2016, maybe 2017. It kind of depends on where you want to count things. Then it declines 2018, 2019, 2020. Whether it declines a lot or a little in 2020, you can debate, but it, it's definitely declined. And the Chinese don't have the money because when Xi Jinping started this, they were bringing in these huge balance of payment surpluses where more money was going to China for paying for their, the products they were exporting and so on than leaving. And those are gone, and they and they 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 disappeared several years ago. So you cannot have a Belt and Road of the size that people were advertising in 2016. It's impossible. The money does not exist. So people get that, and you see a lot of comments about, oh, the Belt and Road isn't working, but it doesn't seem to sink in among policymakers. Stop thinking about the Belt and Road. If you <laughs> want to be worried about specific countries, yes. China has enough money to buy influence in specific countries that they consider strategic. Um, Djibouti is always cited because of a port in the Horn of Africa. Fine, they've got plenty of money for that. But the Belt and Road as a 140 country project is dead. And people say that, but then they write, you know, two minutes later, they're saying, and then we have to respond to the Belt and Road. No, we don't. Well, I mean, we also, you know, a few years ago, saw uh, capital controls in China, which, you know, limited the outbound investment. And then there's also the more recent, uh, you know, practices or sort of uh, initiatives to draw in more investment into China. So it kind of negates or kind of contradicts this, you know, great outbound expedition. Um, but, you know, I guess, I guess that didn't you kind of go to your point. This didn't really stop people from, you know, in Washington policymakers from, uh, you know, talking about how potentially bad this could be, right? And so, you know, we often hear these questions about how does the U.S. compete with China's Belt and Road Initiative? How do we compete uh, on, on certain things? I mean, you know, you're talking about it not sinking in, but I mean, shouldn't people sort of take this away to help guide policymaking? I mean, do you think the U.S. should be trying to out-invest China? No. I understand in 2015, 2016, when, when we saw peak Chinese investment that we didn't know where it was going to go, right? It, this was rising really rapidly, especially in the U.S., to a lesser extent around the world. And we just didn't know where we were going to end up. Now, there were people pointing out that Chinese money had started leaving the country in uncontrolled fashion, capital flight, 2014, 2015. But still, the investment numbers were still rising. We needed to think about this. That was perfectly reasonable on the part of a lot of policymakers, and, and they just kind of don't seem to want to get over it. And that's what we've seen here. You're absolutely right about capital outflow controls being imposed because China was losing too much money that was in uncontrolled fashion. Then they've been trying to draw money in because they have debt problems. That doesn't fit with giant global program. 
the U.S. needs to, to not worry about this anymore. It's not going to work at anything like the scale the Chinese once talked about and foreigners are still talking about. Uh, what we need to do is decide, do we want to respond in countries where China is going to invest a lot because it matters a lot to them? And the case study in this is always Pakistan, China is you know, all-weather friend, which draws a lot of money in Chinese construction. Do we want to compete for, for influence in Pakistan with China? Then we're going to have to spend some money. Um, maybe we do, maybe we don't. But that's the kind of question that needs to be answered. Another question that could be answered is where do we want to put money for our own reasons? Nothing to do with China. We don't care if China's involved there or not. We think there's that money, US money should go to you know, countries in Latin America or, or, or Eastern Europe because we have our own concerns there. Those are perfectly legitimate questions. But the idea that we have to respond to the giant belt and road and trillions of dollars will be spent you know, someday that's all false and it shouldn't influence US policymaking anymore. And unfortunately, you know, the, the legitimate concerns of 2016 have to some extent taken a life of their own and no one wants to hear that the world is different now because they want their giant programs. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I think you've met, we've talked about this before at some length. You, were, you mentioned once that, you know, it, maybe people shouldn't be so focused on the Belt and Road, maybe they should be more focused on specific regions or areas. And, you know, it, it kind of begs the question, there are other Chinese investment trackers out there, right? I think the Simpson Center has one that's really good. I mean, do you know of, uh, you know, some of these other sources that you think would, you know, really pair well with, I think, some of the, some of the data that your research is producing? I mean, do you have any um, recommendations for interested listeners uh, wanting to learn more about Chinese investment? Yes, definitely. I mean, so the advantage of, of this data set, the one that you know I started and was supported by Heritage and now by AEI, is that it's global. And so you can use these numbers in comparative perspective. That's kind of the point. We want to give you a figure for these countries that can be par compared to each other, not that it's like really deep into a country that has, you know, you can see a lot of investment easily and then really shallow for other countries where you know the, the coverage of the investment is poor. We want to give you comparable figures. But if you want to drill down more deeply, uh, Rhodium has a very good investment data set. Rhodium Group, which is a private firm in New York, has a very good data set for the U.S. Merix, they have one for Europe. So that goes deeper in, into what's going on in Europe than we do, because, again, we're global and trying to be comprehensive. And by deeper, I usually mean that they include smaller transactions. So, like, you know, a small country may not get a $100 million Chinese transaction, which is our cutoff, but they get other Chinese transactions, and, and they're covered by other data sets. And then Australia National University has a data set for Australia. The reason I mentioned Australia is the second largest draw for Chinese investment after the United States. And of course, Australia is much smaller than the U.S., both economically and in population. So it's actually been historically the number one area for Chinese investment, although they are also seeing sharp declines. But those would be three examples, uh, Merricks, Rhodium, and uh, ANU, Australian National University. And they all drill down deeper for specific countries. So that's that's an advantage. The disadvantage is you can't really use their numbers to compare because they're using different methodologies. So you know, one of the interesting findings from your research uh, is the issue of what you consider uh, troubled transactions. And, and you know, it kind of looks like most of the troubled transactions that, that occur happen to be actually in the United States. I mean, can you kind of briefly describe what a troubled transaction is and why you know, there are so many in the United States and why this, how this might actually relate to policymaking? 
Yeah, so I started with trouble transactions because of an event in the United States, which is in 2005, the Chinese were trying to buy Unical. And if they had been successful, that money would have been larger than the total sum of all Chinese outbound investment before that, that one transaction. And it failed. And it failed because members of Congress said, well, can we buy a Chinese oil firm? No. So why would we let you buy one of our oil firms? Now, if you're a Unical shareholder, this was very unsatisfying, but it made some sense in terms of reciprocity because that is the founding principle of global trade. Um, so the, unit, the, the deal failed. And I thought, well, look, I can't like document Chinese investment and then ignore a, a, a failure, which is like 10 times larger than the, most, the, the biggest successful investment. And so that was the motivation. And you're right that a lot of it's been in the U.S. There's been plenty in Australia, too, partly because the U.S. draws the most Chinese investment, but partly because we had not the first, but I would say the most active investment review process in the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And so we kept checking Chinese investments. Now, some of it was politically motivated. Members of Congress would say, block that, and then there'd be an investigation. But some of it was technically motivated. We had technology the Chinese wanted to buy, and we didn't want to sell it to them. And right, you know, only recently have you seen other countries say, oh, uh, you know, we could stand one of those review mechanisms ourselves. Europe has been working on it for the last couple of years. It's very hard, of course, because the countries have different regulatory bodies and it's hard to put one together for the EU as a whole. Australia's review mechanism has Foreign Investment Review Board. FERB has been more active. So they're mostly in the U.S. because we've had more active regulatory review. That's a trend that's been extended to other countries. And now it's deterred some Chinese investments. So one of the reasons Chinese investment has dropped is they don't have the money. Another one is they know their, their transactions are going to be reviewed more strictly than they were five years ago. There's probably a, a, a political factor to that too, right? I mean, it's while it might not be publicly available, I'm sure the growing tension between Washington and Beijing adds to that anti-invest-in-the-U.S. sentiment. Oh, you mean on the Chinese side? Yeah, um, or yeah. both, I suppose. Uh, well, on the U.S. side, I think you know what what happened in the U.S. the 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 CFIUS tightening, the the legislation that that made U.S. regulatory review tighter predates U.S.-China tension. It was a response to surging Chinese investment in the U.S., which was kind of due to happy U.S.-China relations. So you know we got nervous because there's a lot of money coming in and it was hard for us to track. You know all these firms popping up and we didn't they didn't have any pedigree. We didn't know where they were coming from. Um, on the Chinese side, in addition to worrying about capital flight, yeah, they've started to say, look, if you can buy a really valuable American asset, fine, but don't go buying like a hotel. Like we're not friends. Go buy technology if you can get it. You probably can't, but if you can, that's worthwhile. But these kind of luxury purchases. We want to stop those because the relationships deteriorated. So I don't, I don't think that the the trouble has the trouble didn't come out of politics. It came out of a surge in Chinese investment, which actually alarmed both Beijing and Washington for different reasons. But it's it's been intensified in some areas by politics, where casual Chinese acquisitions uh, now seem to uh, like they they draw too much attention and no one wants to go through with them. And the Chinese are only interested in really high value targets. So a major theme of your most recent report, Derek, as I'm sure it is for many analysts these days, is the effect COVID-19 is having in your research field. I think a lot of people are worried Chinese companies are going to buy up financially weak U.S. businesses during these really difficult and trying times. 
Um, what impact, if any, do you think COVID will have on Chinese investments? Do you think it will create any challenges for data collection or any distortions in the market? Um, so yeah, there's a methods question there and a substance question. On the substance question, we can say for sure to now, the Chinese are not buying up weak US firms. Um, they're not buying up weak European firms, they're not buying up weak Australian or Canadian firms, it's just not happening, right? So we don't, even, we don't have to trust the Chinese on this. Those are partners in rich countries with good information environments. We know when firms are being sold and it's not occurring to now. Now, you know, that may be because for, from, from January through July or whatever, August, you really didn't want to say in China, oh, I'm sending my money out of the country. Good luck, everyone. Bye. Um, you know, that was not something you wanted to disclose or, 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 or to do. China being first in into the pandemic and, and, and arguably or among the first out, there may be a time in the future where the Chinese say, all right, well, we feel okay now and there's still some distressed assets out there. Let's go buy them. So I don't mean to say that the issue of China buying up companies on the cheap is settled. But there ha that has not occurred to now because we would know about it in rich countries. Um, the methodology challenge is the Chinese don't seem to want to disclose anything. And this is typical for Chinese companies. Whenever something becomes stressful, they say less. So, you know, the example I always use is, is when we made climate change under the Obama administration a big bilateral political issue, Chinese firms wanted less cooperation because for them, the only the only uh, a point of, of making it a major political issue was it increased their risk that something would go wrong and they would get blamed. And COVID is something similar. You have tensions in China, then you have tensions in around the world. Now you still have tensions in other countries. And the Chinese just don't want any part of that. Um, Chinese companies don't like to say that they're, they're being active in a high stress environment because for them, all that happens is they get criticized, it reflects badly on the party, and then they get in trouble. So methodologically, COVID is a big problem because it's a standard situation where the Chinese don't want to tell you what they're doing. They may not be doing anything, but if they were doing something, they still wouldn't want to, want to disclose it. And our methodology, which relies on corporate disclosure, is at a disadvantage during the, you know, has been a disadvantage and will, will continue to be if COVID is still an important global factor. Mm, I, I really love that point, Derek. It, it kind of reminds me of something that um, our heritage colleague and friend Dean often says, which is sometimes what's not being said is almost more important than what is being said. So it seems like, you know, when the Chinese companies do fall silent, that tells you something about the nature of the environment um, and, and the nature of what they're going through. So to conclude, I would love to hear from you what action you would like to see in response to the findings of your report. Um, what are some of the most effective ways you think that policymakers can make use of your data? And you already touched on this to some extent in terms of how it should help us to view Belt and Road Initiative, but I'd definitely be curious to hear some other areas where you would like to see it having effect. Well, I'm going to extend the Belt and Road Initiative point to, to something Riley touched on earlier, which is this is our money. Um, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative is funded primarily by the merchandise trade surplus of the U.S. If you take that away, there's no Belt and Road at all. Um, now, there are costs to taking that away, but that's just true. Um, U.S. money going into China, you know, during this period of the, quote, Trump trade war, unquote, on official U.S. government figures, U.S. portfolio investment in China has more than doubled since the president took office. 
if you if you try to get an estimate of how much money is going from the United States to China through the Caymans, it's enormous. Now, those estimates are rough, but we're talking three quarters of a trillion dollars, something along those lines. So when we talk about Chinese money going out in the world, it's American money that goes through China. Now we make, you know, that benefits us. We buy Chinese products. We want to buy Chinese products. Um, we invest in China because the yields are higher. But just, I, I would love policymakers to understand that the Chinese footprint in the world in, in hard currency is primarily financed by American demand. To, you know, we want to give China dollars. And those are the dollars that they use internationally. So if you're upset at what China's do, use, the, the money China's using internationally, look in the mirror. Well, uh, Derek, thanks for um, sort of giving our listeners a better understanding of Chinese investment. I mean, I, for one, know it's it's a complicated issue that seems to you know either not not get enough attention, or or definitely more attention than it needs. Specific, specifically, some of those more politically uh, fueled investments. Um, you know, I think we need more data like yours. Uh, you know, really paint a picture of what's going on in the Chinese investment space. Thank you. I agree. And I'll just add, connecting your point to the one I just made, we don't know where U.S. portfolio investment goes. Um, we, it goes to offshore sources and we don't know where it ends up. The Caymans are to us like Hong Kong is to China. And, you, and you know, as, as you guys know very well, especially working in the human rights space as Olivia does, if you don't have information, you can't make good policy. That's very true. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Derek. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to our second episode of China Uncovered, a podcast dedicated to pulling back the veil on the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. Stay tuned. Two weeks from now, we'll bring you another episode of China Uncovered, where we will discuss the CCP's lack of transparency in the area of technology. Subscribe to China Uncovered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We hope to see you next time. China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.